Good morning, everyone. It is good to be here with you this morning. That is the third time I've got to sing all those songs, which is kind of awesome. Um, You guys should try coming to all three services next week. I think you would like it. Um, I uh, trust you had a good Christmas. Um, I, uh, I hope two things happened for you over Christmas. One, that you were able to worship God for sending his son, Jesus Christ, to the world. And I also hope that Christmas brought unity to your family. And if either of those things did not happen, it is not too late to start praying for next year that that, that might be the case next year. Christmas is a, it's a great time of the year. Well, we are in First Kings this morning, First Kings 21. And this is in the middle of the life of Elijah. Elijah is kind of a big deal in the Old Testament, a pretty important prophet. And this is one of, one of the more famous accounts in Elijah's life. It's probably not the most famous. There's probably uh, a, a couple that are more famous. But this is, a, this is a pretty big one. You might have a title in your Bible that says Naboth's Vineyard. I've titled my sermon Vineyard Gates because there is quite the scandal going on in the city of Jezreel, and we're going to read all about it. So, if you would stand up. We're going to read all of 1 Kings 21, and if you... This is, a, this is a lot of verses to stand up for, I'll be honest. So if you get tired or find yourself having a hard time concentrating on those verses, go ahead and sit down. It's okay. We want you to concentrate. But here we go, 1 Kings 21. Now, Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went to his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So, She wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king, and take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she, sent, that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He's dead. 
As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then... The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who was in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. I will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me. And because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably, going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word. I pray that you would illuminate it this morning so that we would understand it rightly, so that we would apply it in a way that honors you and that would make us more like Christ. We love you, Father, and we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, that was a mouthful to read, and it's quite a story, isn't it? It's very interesting what happens. There starts this plot that is slowly unveiled. We see the whole thing take place. And just when it seems that evil is going to triumph, God shows up on the scene, has a word of the Lord, goes to Elijah, and the whole thing is revealed. And... What I am arguing about this passage, I think the whole thing, I think the whole story is ultimately trying to tell us something about God's justice. All the treachery, all of everything is revealed so that we would understand God's justice better. So that's how we're going to be looking at it this morning. It divides up very nicely. Verses 1 through 16 is just explaining the heist. And it all starts with Naboth refusing to sell his vineyard. 
Verse 1 can probably use some explaining to set the stage. Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel. This was a nice vineyard. It was right next to the palace. It was beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. At this time in Israel's history, we normally think of Israel as like one country, but at this time it's two countries. Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. Judah, all their kings were direct descendants of David, generally more godly, listen to God more. Israel, though they have the name that we all recognize, their kings usually pretty evil, generally do less good in the sight of the Lord. And Ahab in particular, who's the king at this time, we find out in 1 Kings 16 verse 30, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That is a distinction that you never want to have about yourself. He did more evil than everyone else who came before him. He was the king of Samaria because Samaria was the capital city of Israel. But what happened is Jezreel, the Jezreel Valley, was kind of a nice location. It had a lower, um, it, it didn't have as high an elevation. And so during the winter months, there's much better weather. And so, in fact, I have a few pictures of the Jezreel Valley that you can see. But what happened is that the winter palace of the king was set up in Jezreel. And Naboth had the pleasure of his vineyard being right next door to the palace. It's not a bad deal, all things considered. Nice neighborhood, good schools, low crime. I'm sure the whole thing was lovely. Except Ahab sees this vineyard and decides that he needs to have it. I'm sure he's talking to his landscape architect who's telling him, you know, it's a nice plot of land, it's conveniently located. Ahab probably just got like a grill basket for Christmas. And so he's looking ahead to grilling season and thinking, I should start growing some peppers and zucchinis now. That way I'm ready for the summer months when it's a good time to grill. So he's looking at this thing thinking, yeah, it's pretty good. Let me go talk to Naboth. And Ahab shows up to Naboth's vineyard and offers him, by all accounts, a pretty good deal. Tell you what, Naboth, you have this vineyard that's just very nicely located for me. I don't think it matters to you. But there's a better vineyard over there. Why don't we switch? You take that vineyard. I'll take this vineyard. Everyone is happy. Or if you'd prefer, I'll just buy it off you, right? Maybe you, maybe you need an influx of cash. Naboth refuses. And I'm not sure if you've ever told someone no who was in a position of power and authority over you. But my guess is that Naboth was kind of nervous to tell the king no. And it's, just, and it's not just that he was telling the king no, it's that he was telling the most evil king ever did more evil in the sight of the Lord than anyone else. This is who Naboth is saying no to. But it's not just a polite refusal, thanks but no thanks. He says, the Lord forbid... The Lord forbid. He gets God in on it. And maybe this is why Ahab really takes the news so much better. But as it turns out, the Old Testament had multiple places where the law actually forbid people from selling their land. You were supposed to hang on to the land that your family had inherited. Numbers 36.7 is the easiest single verse that explains this. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So 
Naboth is literally saying, the Lord forbid that I do what the Lord has forbid. I can't trade this. This is, my, this is the inheritance of my fathers. I can't sell it. I'm sorry. And Ahab, to his credit, responds pretty well. Well, at least he accepts the answer. He goes off and pouts, goes home, vexed, sullen, lays down in his bed, buries his face in his pillow, cries for a little bit, won't come down to dinner. And that's where he is. And that, it seems, is where things would have stayed were it not for his wife. Enter Jezebel. Jezebel, there might not be a more fascinating character in the Bible. She is not godly, even a little bit. So this is not someone you want your daughters to grow up and be like. But she did some very interesting things. And Jezebel comes in, and every time I think of Jezebel, I just think of a younger Cruella de Vil. Like, this is exactly who it is. Just, you know, a little bit sultry, a little bit conniving, you know, walking around with a coat made out of dead puppies. This is, this is her. And she's got to be sitting downstairs at dinner. The pot roast is getting cold. She's asking the servants, where is Ahab? Oh, man, like she's, he's upstairs crying again. We don't know why. He just weeps sometimes. She's just, oh, Ahab. Rolls upstairs and is like, what is going on? Uh, explain the situation for me. Oh, I wanted this vineyard. They both wouldn't sell it. Weep, weep, weep. That's how it goes. And she's just sitting there, just Ahab. Do you now govern Israel? Aren't you the king? If you want a vineyard, then go take that vineyard. What is the matter with you? Definitely a difference in how they view kingship. Jezebel was not an Israelite. She was the daughter of a Phoenician king, so she's a Phoenician princess, and apparently this is how they did it there. Ahab at least had some sense of being governed by the same laws that his people were governed by, but Jezebel had no such thing. What the king wants is law. But she's had enough of his shenanigans. Look, Ahab, you go downstairs, have a snack. I will take care of this for you. And so she writes him a little note. I owe you one vineyard, hands it to him. I'm going to take care of it. Don't worry. And heads off to the executive suite. And she begins to write letters and to concoct this plan. Now, I feel like what this reveals about me is that I would not be the best evil king in the world because I would take care of this in a very straightforward way. She has this whole elaborate plan. I mean, don't they have someone on payroll who can just take care of this? Just thugs for hire, right? You can just send, you know, a couple of hard guys down with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch to take care of things. But she doesn't do that. She writes letters. And she makes her injustice both legal and religious. This is what her plan is. First of all, she writes to the city officials, I want you to call a fast. Get everyone down in the same place. No one's eating. Everyone's praying. Because, presumably, this is why you called fast in a town. 
there was some sort of blight, some sort of scourge, some sort of divine judgment that was coming on the town. And we need everyone to get together and pray that God would deliver us from this. And so that's what they do. They gather everyone together. And then I'm glad to find out that they do at least have worthless fellows on the, uh, on the payroll. Get some worthless men opposite him. You need two. Why two? Because the law required for capital punishment cases that there be two witnesses, not just one. So it's very important. You get Naboth, get all these people together, people that Naboth might, normally, might not normally want to sit next to, but somehow get them all sitting together. And at the right time, just have these two men stand up, point their finger at Naboth, and say he cursed God and the king. Those are capital offenses. And in order to keep this divine judgment from happening to us, the right thing is to stone him. And I just cannot, I cannot imagine being Naboth. Can you imagine showing up to a prayer meeting that you've been fasting for all day or perhaps multiple days? Showing up to a prayer meeting and people who, uh, weren't we all just praying together, are suddenly accusing you and now you're being drug outside to be stoned to death. What has got to be going through his mind at this point? And it's worse because 2 Kings 9.26 tells us that it's not just Naboth who was stoned. It was his children as well. If Ahab's going to get the vineyard, there can't be any heirs to inherit it. And so Naboth and his whole family is killed. Uh, can you imagine being drug outside wrongfully to be stoned and to see the same thing happening to your children? What is in his mind at that point? It's just not fair. How, how did this happen? Why is this happening? Why, who are these people who are lying about me? But they stone him. They stone his sons. And they write back to Jezebel. It's done. Naboth's dead. We've stoned him with stones. And at the end of this, in verse 15 and 16, everyone gets what they want. Jezebel immediately goes, to, goes and tells Ahab, wouldn't you know it, Naboth is dead. And Ahab, he's not concerned. He doesn't think that it's weird. If you told me that you were having trouble with your boss at work, and I was like, oh, you know what? I kind of know him. I'll take care of it for you. And a week later, your boss was dead. That would be a weird conversation that we would have, I think. I think. Ahab's not worried. Like, really? And all his kids too? Oh, wonderful. You know, here come, here come the summer squashes. And everything is wrapped up in a nice, tidy little bow. Jezebel never needed to go to the city, didn't need to talk to the officials. There's just a small paper trail that I'm sure they took care of right away. It's all very slick. Just a little bit of postage and it was finished. I want to pause here before we go on. I think there are some things to learn from the first half of this, this account. And ultimately, I think the biggest question is, why? Why did this happen? Naboth, Naboth seems to be a pretty godly guy. He was right. You know, he didn't want to, 
He didn't want to sell his land when, when the Lord had commanded him specifically not to do it. And this terrible thing happened to him. He was killed. His family was killed. Why does, it's probably most commonly asked, why do good things happen to bad people? Where is the justice for Naboth? And I think this passage illuminates some things, maybe some corrects some misunderstandings about the nature of God's justice. First of all, things we should learn believers should expect mistreatment and injustice toward them in the world. Naboth was a faithful man who was taken advantage of. There are many accounts of faithful men being wronged. And the New Testament really is no different on this account. 1 Peter 4.12 said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. You will go on trial for your faith. And when that time comes, don't think that this is weird. This isn't strange. This is completely normal. It should be expected. It's part of being a believer. Mark 13, Jesus says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. you might be a really godly person. Maybe at least some of the time, you're a really godly person. But the Bible does not promise that that will just result in all of this blessing on this earth. You're not going to get sick. You're not going to get taken advantage of. You're going to be rich. You're going to have a great life, your best life. The Bible doesn't promise that. And anyone who tells you that it does is wrong. Believers should expect mistreatment in the world. God doesn't doesn't promise to keep you from that. And in fact, another thing to learn, that injustice will be inflicted by the government or others who have God-given authority over you. This isn't just bad things happening to Naboth. This is Naboth's king and queen plotting against him and then getting the local government, his city officials, in on it as well. They're all plotting for his downfall. Romans 13 tells us very clearly that we're supposed to submit to our governing authorities, and yet we know that sometimes we will be taken advantage of. And the Bible says, "Uh uh-huh. That's just part of what will happen. And what's interesting is the reason the Bible just nods its head and says, yes, that's, that will happen sometimes, is because, in fact, what the Bible says is that you deserve even worse than that. Mistreatment, wrongful death, you deserve hell. And it seems it seems wrong to say that somehow, and you guys are generally okay with that, if you, if you put your trust in Christ and believe in him for salvation, you're saying, well, yes, I deserve hell, but I don't, I mean, I don't deserve this other stuff. Right? I deserve hell, but not to be mistreated. I deserve hell, but not to have some sort of injustice done to me. And that just seems wrong. If you deserve hell, then you deserve the worst 
that there is. And that is biblical. That's just what the Bible teaches about what you deserve. But get this. You have a Savior who understands. This is the beauty of Christ, that he became a man, God's son became a man. We just celebrated his birth. He lived this whole life. He lived it perfectly. He didn't do anything wrong. He is the one person who deserved better. And he got the worst possible thing. You read at the end of Matthew how the chief priests, the whole council was trying to arrange false testimony against him. Ultimately, they were successful and they killed him. Jesus, the one person who never did anything wrong, was killed on a cross. But not only that, the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world was poured out on him. And he didn't deserve any of it. He got so much worse than we could ever receive. And he deserved it so much less. It's mind-boggling. We have a Savior who understands. Second Corinthians 1.5 says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. You will suffer because of Christ, but Christ suffered for you, and Christ can comfort you in suffering. You have a Savior who understands. The last thing that I want to talk about here is that we should be prepared to stand up for justice. If you notice, Jezebel's plan was not foolproof. It depended on one very important thing, her writing a letter to the city officials, them receiving it, reading it, understanding what she was asking, and saying nothing. Just going along with it. She needed... Certainly this injustice was perpetuated most by her own wickedness and Ahab's. But it was helped along by people willing to do nothing. People not willing to stand up for what was right. Certainly there would have been consequences for them. Talking about a command on the king's letterhead with his seal... Could have gotten in trouble. They could have gotten killed. Their whole families could have been killed. But in order for injustice to prevail, sometimes people just need to do nothing. I'm fascinated. There are a few passages that fascinate me more than Zechariah 7. Zechariah 7, 9, and 10. Because the context is that eventually Israel, it's a divided kingdom now, eventually Assyria would come and beat down Israel and send them off into slavery. And then a little while later, Babylon would come and conquer Judah and send them off to slavery. So everyone who's part of God's people is being conquered and sent off to slavery. And the land that they were promised in the Old Testament is taken away from it. And the question is why? And Zechariah is addressing that in Zechariah 7. And 9 and 10 say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. 
And that passage goes on to say that they did not do that. In fact, they made their hearts diamond hard against such commands. And that's why they were kicked out of the land. That's why they were sold into slavery. Because they did not render true judgments, show kindness and mercy. And they were oppressing the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the poor. This is just one list, but it's a very fascinating list. You're talking about people from broken homes, people from other countries, and people who don't have a lot of money. I think those people groups probably are very easily oppressed even today. And what's interesting is that he wants kindness and mercy. A lot of people have strong opinions about people from other countries. Illegal immigration, some of you, I'm sure, have strong opinions about what should be done and how to solve the problem or what to do. Does your heart immediately react with kindness and mercy for those people? The poor, a lot of people doing kind things for the poor around Christmas time, but when you encounter a homeless person in the parking lot of your grocery store, does your heart, do you just automatically feel kindness and compassion? Are you concerned that true judgments are rendered for people? What, is, what does your heart default to? toward these people groups who are historically oppressed and continue to be. And there's, uh, this is just one list. I mean, I'm sure we can come up with all kinds of different groups that we, that we know wrong things are done to them. Do you have a heart that is compassionate? Do you feel kindness? Or do you need to repent of your attitude toward all kinds of people? And you need to ask God to give you the kind of heart you should have. We need to be prepared to stand up for justice. Um, I can't help but feel like there's a really good application for children here. Um, any, kids who are, any kids who are here? Uh, maybe the most unnecessary meanness happens amongst children. That's probably not true. There's probably unnecessary meanness everywhere. But unnecessary meanness happens many times among children. I just think about my childhood and people picking on other people. Uh, This can happen in your family. This can happen just playing with friends. This can happen anywhere. And one of the best ways I think kids can stand up for justice is is to put a stop to unnecessary meanness and to not participate in it. Um, think about that kids we got to move on though the heist was executed the scandal is revealed at the end of 15 and 16 we get this nice wrap up and everything seems done Naboth is dead everyone is happy except for Naboth I guess he's in heaven I suppose he was happy at that point also But suddenly, in verse 17, the word of the Lord is given to Elijah. 
And I just, I picture him, uh, for some reason, he's laying down in my mind. And suddenly, the word of the Lord comes and he <gasps> just sits up in bed or sits up wherever he was. And he just, boom, suddenly he knows something that was revealed to him. It's not like he was some detective sleuthing around for, you know, this Naboth business seems really interesting. I wonder if there, no, like God just came to him and said, guess what, Elijah? It's time to go on a field trip. Arise, go down and meet Ahab, the king of Israel. He's in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession and tell him, have you killed and taken possession? Ahab, that is a problem. You have, you have done something wrong. And God tells him, That disaster is predicted for Ahab's house. Dogs will lick up your blood, Ahab. This was more insulting, I guess, than it sounds. Ancient Israel had a distinct lack of labradoodles. And so dogs weren't quite the fluffy, friendly companions that they are today. This was insulting. If dogs were able to lick up your blood, that means you weren't properly buried. It means that you were being essentially disrespected after you were killed. And in religiously superstitious ancient Israel, it also wasn't a good sign for the afterlife. If dogs are, you know, licking up your blood, then that doesn't, that doesn't bode well for your soul. So dogs for you, Ahab. As it turns out, dogs for Jezebel and dogs for anyone belonging to Ahab or birds if they happen to be outside the city. Everyone's getting insulted. Everyone's getting in on this disaster. It's a disaster that's very similar to Jeroboam and and Basha. Both of them got the whole dog treatment also. For, look at this. It says in verse 22, for the anger to which you have provoked me, so because of what you've done right now, but also and because you have made Israel to sin. As it turns out, Ahab was already on a short leash with the Lord. The reason is because Basha and Jeroboam in particular, Jeroboam reinstituted in Israel golden calf worship. Do you remember golden calf worship way back at Sinai? Moses is up on the mountain getting the law. The rest of Israel is down with Aaron. They create a golden calf and start worshiping it. Well, when the kingdom split and Jeroboam is up there with Israel, he starts golden calf worship again. And I don't need to tell you that idolatry does not make God happy. And so Jeroboam was under a certain amount of judgment, but Ahab and Jezebel really stepped up their game when it comes to leading Israel into idolatry because the two of them introduced Israel to Baal worship. Maybe you've heard of Baal. Now, instead of just run-of-the-mill normal idolatry, this was designer idolatry. It is much worse. It, Baal worship could involve temple prostitutes. It could involve child sacrifices. It could involve all kinds of terrible, terrible things. And it swept the nation. And it was popularized by Ahab and Jezebel. They're the ones who started it. Ahab had made Israel to sin. 
And now here he is standing by while his wife orchestrates Naboth's death. What's interesting is Ahab's reaction to this. Verse 25 is a nice summary of all Ahab's sins. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably, going after idols, etc., etc. Yeah, we, we got that. But look in this, in 27, Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, fasted, and went about dejectedly. And I, I suppose we should praise the Lord that I'm not a prophet, because were I Elijah... I'd be looking at this whole thing thinking, you've got to be kidding me, Ahab. You think this is going to work? It's too late. With the Baal worship was bad enough, but now you've just, Naboth is dead. All your sadness isn't going to bring him back to life. This is ridiculous. But in verse 29, God is now like having a conversation with Elijah. I picture him like elbowing in the ribs. Hey, have you seen have you seen how Ahab humbled himself? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days. But in the son's days, I will bring disaster upon his house. I think it is inevitable that Ahab's repentance was genuine. I, I cannot think of another reason why God would delay the disaster and tell Elijah, see how Ahab has humbled himself? However, I think it is equally obvious that Ahab's repentance was temporary because the very next chapter we see him back to his old ways. So true repentance, but temporary repentance. But God is still glad for it. A couple of things to learn from this last section. God suddenly comes on the scene, uninvited, really, and unexpected. And I think it's inevitable that, that the last half of our text is going to be about God. God will make sure that true justice takes place. And this is, this is a relief, I think, given the things that we learned in the first half. That you should expect mistreatment, even mistreatment by the government or those who have God-given authority over you. But true justice will take place. For Naboth, it's interesting, you would think if God was going to intervene, why didn't he do it before Naboth was killed? That might have been a nicer thing to do. I, I don't know. But God nowhere promises that true justice will happen before injustice happens to you, or at least before injustice goes so far as to kill you, or anything like that. Sometimes justice will take place on this earth, but true justice will always happen eventually. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 7. Let me start in verse 6, actually. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to you who are afflicted as well as to us. See what that's saying? God's saying God thinks that it's just to repay those who afflict you with affliction 
And you who are afflicted, he'll grant you rest. When will this happen? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. This is talking about the second coming of Christ. True justice will always happen. But in all probability, it will happen later. We are waiting for that. We're waiting for that. But God, God will make sure that it happens. We don't have to worry if it will. Second, God uses his people to bring about justice in the world. He could have done whatever he wanted, but he used Elijah the Tishbite. And I think there is every reason to expect that he wants to use you to bring about justice. We had to keep going. God loves to show mercy to those who repent. I, I tell you, I, I look at this. A- A- Ahab's, that's just not impressive repentance. It's a little unsettling for this. Like, I, I, wish, I wish Ahab was punished, don't you? And yet, God, God was merciful. God accepted bad repentance. And I'll tell you, sometimes I offer really good repentance. I'm, you know, I'm turning away from what's wrong and I'm turning back to the Lord and it's awesome. But probably, maybe a huge portion of the time, I'm offering some Ahab-like repentance. It's pretty temporary. It's questionable. Praise the Lord that God is even more merciful than, we, than it seems like he should be. Because you and I need that kind of mercy. We're not at the top of the list where he just, oh, just a little bit of mercy for us. Everyone else, that might be too much mercy than I have to give. We are the same as everyone else. And just as in need, just as desperately in need of mercy as anyone else. And God loves to show mercy to those who turn away from what's wrong and turn back toward him. Finally, I think this is very interesting. Ahab, Ahab is worse off because of his wife. If you notice in the beginning, he responds pretty well. He responds pretty well to Naboth. In the end, he responds pretty well to Elijah. What's the corrupting influence here? I think it's Jezebel. It has to be Jezebel. And Ephesians 5 makes us very clear that the way a husband and wife love each other is perfectly capable. And in fact, it's expected that it shows the world how Christ loves the church. But I think it's equally obvious that if there is something wrong in a marriage, that it can do tremendous harm. It can do tremendous harm. It can make you significantly less godly than you otherwise would be. And cause you all kinds of problems. So if you are married, man, pray to God that he would help you be a sanctifying influence on your spouse. That you would reveal the way Christ loves the church as opposed to causing your spouse to act more sinfully. And if you're single, don't fall into the trap 
of thinking that somehow marriage is the key to your godliness and your happiness and your fulfillment because it ends in disaster for many, many people. Be glad for what God has given you. Be content. We need to finish up. But what I want you, what I want you to remember is what this is telling you about God's justice. It will happen, but right now, there could be all kinds of oppression and mistreatment toward you. The question is, in your heart, do you have mercy and compassion and love for others and a desire, though others would mistreat them? Do you have a desire to render true judgments? and to show mercy and compassion. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for this text and we are glad that you reveal something about your justice in this passage. I pray that all of us would show mercy and compassion to others, that in our hearts we would love to repent and that we would love to be kind toward <laughs> others who repent, God. Pray that you would give us a right view of ourselves, of our sin and what we deserve, and that that would cause us to demonstrate to the world how Christ loves the church. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.